everyone home safe every day. On a system with so much inherent risk as the mainline railway, that's a big task. Something that unfortunately we can't achieve overnight. But that's not to say it isn't a goal worth aiming for. The tragic loss of life in the most recent incident at Markham and at Surbiton remind us that working on the infrastructure while traffic is moving isn't always as safe as it should be. While all of us who go to work on the railway have a part to play in improving safety, there are those whose job it is to deliver the big changes that will get us to a point where everyone does get home safe every day. One of those is Nick Millington, leader of the Safety Task Force at Network Rail, who joins me today. Welcome, Nick. Before we get into what you're doing today, could I ask you to introduce yourself to our audience and to tell us how you came to your current role on the railway? Hi, and um, Yeah, thank you. So I've been in the railway industry since I left school. I was an apprentice, started 31 years ago, and I've worked on railway infrastructure all of my life. And it is abundantly clear to me that we can choose to be safe. We can focus on, on safe outcomes and we can achieve an injury-free environment. Now, my role's involved working on plant, on machinery, on track renewals, on maintenance. I've been a major projects deliverer and I've also been a maintenance director. And um, when the sad events of Margam happened, I was already on the western route where I was resident, reducing the risk to track workers. And I was asked to lead up the safety task force to build from Western and reduce this risk right across the country. So that's how I've ended up in the Safety Task Force. Thank you, Nick, and welcome to RSSB at the front line. I mentioned Mar the Margam and Surbiton accidents in my introduction. These have highlighted that the moves to re reduce risk on those working on the track hasn't continued to fall in the way that we'd all like it to happen. Can you tell us about the numbers involved in the past, why the reduction in incidents and near misses slowed down, and what your plans are now to continue that reduction in harm? Near misses have reduced over the last 20 years. And in general, there, there is a downward trend. However, in the three years before 2019, that reducing trend plateaued. So it remains static at circa 70 near miss events each year. And that, that involved you know, almost 160 people each year diving out the way of trains. And also, after a three-year gap where no track workers were struck, we saw the sad events of Stokes Nest and then obviously Margam. So also the trend for track workers being killed by trains had also reversed. So we, ha we had to act. We set up the task force in 2019. Our goals are clear. We are focused on eliminating working on open railway lines with human forms of lookout. You know, human frailty is a factor in a number of the accidents that we've seen. So we're going to overhaul the way that we deliver our plans. We're also mindful of risk transfer, and we're focused on this too. And as a good example, we're focused on signal workload and asset compliance as well. So the task force is 18 months old now. We've got hundreds of people working on the task force across the country. And in the last 18 months, we've reduced open line working by nearly 90%, which is a, which is quite a staggering amount. So at the point of Margam in 2019, we were doing 30,000 hours of work a week on open railways. And we are now down to about 3,000 hours a week. And we've got plans in place this year to eliminate this practice. 
And we've also seen near misses over the same 18 month period reduced by 60%. So, you know, we are confident that the work that we are doing, whilst it's really complicated and it's challenging people to change, it's having the right outcomes. Thank you, Nick. Those sound like some very impressive results so far. But if you're removing human lookouts, could you tell us what the technologies are that will replace them? So we're deploying a lot of safety equipment and a lot of technology. And that may sound frightening to some, but you shouldn't be frightened of it. So we're deploying a lot more technology to monitor assets and using the technology to reduce the amount of time that we need to put a human in harm's way. So a good example would be plane line pattern recognition. I mean, once upon a time, we sent patrollers out and we still send patrollers out now, but we have converted 11,500 miles of plane line patrolling to automated inspections. We are experimenting with drones right across the country to look at where we can get use high definition footage to manage the line side and also some supplementary inspections for things like switch and crossing layouts. And we're also fitting a lot of monitoring equipment to things like track circuits and axle counters, air conditioning and many other parts of the railway infrastructure. And that enables us then to to keep an eye on our assets without needing to put human beings in harm's way. We're also using something called risk based maintenance, which basically means that we are looking at an asset's condition, how it's being used, the service requirement and a number of other factors. And it means that we can alter in a safe way the way that we maintain our assets. So we can apply risk-based maintenance to new assets because we've got intelligent monitoring kit, which means that also that we don't have to visit those assets as frequently. We don't have to visit you know, in some of them at all. And we can monitor their safety and their compliance remotely. So that's, that's obviously helping to reduce the need to put our value colleagues in the way of moving trains. Another thing that we're focused on is removing human error. And the way that we're doing that is that we are installing at least 200 train activated warning systems in specific locations. So in a number of our our near miss events, we know that there are human factors where lookout systems fail. Whereas if we use treadle based train sensors, we know that they have a very high safety integrity level, same as our signaling systems. And they are a much higher integrity way of providing safety warnings to our track workers. And we're not putting those in any old location. There are certain specific locations where that equipment is applicable. And that's where we're putting that equipment. As well as I talked earlier on about risk transfer, uh, we're really we're really mindful of signal workload. And we do not want this plan to be seen to be just transferring the risk from lookout flags into into the signal workstation. So we've introduced a much more detailed signal workload assessment activity, and we are evolving and establishing a much more stable line blockage plan. And in that line blockage plan, we're deploying a number of techniques to additionally protect line blockages. So things like remote track circuit operating devices, more remote disconnections with signal box technicians, and this safety equipment, And these roles that I've just referred to will protect against the risk of trains being accidentally routed into into planned line blockages, which I know is a concern for many. Thank you, Nick. That sounds like you've got things uh, very well lined up to happen. Let me play devil's advocate for a moment. If you've removed the role of lookout from a work team, that's going to mean job losses. 
what can you say to reinsure those lookouts that their railway career isn't about to end? In the last 18 months, we have so far reduced lookout working by 80%. It's near a 90% now, in fact. And we are not seeking redundancies from this programme. Lookout is a competence, it's not a role. As a, for instance, we are moving the way that we work in general from warning methods to protection methods. And in those protection methods, we still have a very heavy requirement for site wardens, um, also protection controllers. And there are a number of other roles where the individuals have got the right skills and we are now deploying them in a way to protect teams rather than warn teams. I think there's a subtle shift in what I've just said there. We've still got some way to go. Also, we take 25,000 line blockages every four weeks. Um, So far, we've increased additional protection from 6% to 30% each period. So our aspiration is to protect line blockages. So we need a lot of additional help in this area. So we're deploying our team members to help protect line blockages. Another area where there's more work to do, we are focusing on providing basic railway necessities. So things like safe cess pathways, more access points, and those assets need to be inspected. They need to be kept fit for purpose. So clearing the budget and all those sorts of things that happen to the safe cesses. So we are going to make sure that safe cesses are a standard feature in our and our asset registers for which have got they've got inspection frequencies and you know that we we structure and plan our work to keep those fit for purpose so there is plenty of work that's coming from the safety task force that we need to do still to keep track workers safe and that involves using our skilled colleagues to do that thank you nick so you've talked about the possibility of removing virtually all unassisted lookout working but putting more line blockages has impact on the workload for signalers. And you've already mentioned that you have a work plan for signalers. Could you tell us a little bit more about that, please? Yeah, so there was a genuine concern when I started this programme about transferring the risk from lookouts into our signalling workstations. So signal workload and signal error being the primary concern. So we've created a new signal workload assessment tool and we have undertaken workload assessment activities on all of our 680 signal workstations right across the country. So we've done that and and, and the first pass of that is complete. Following that, we've undertaken further workshops again in every one of the 680 workstations and that involves our operations colleagues coming together talking to work deliverers and talking about the locations where the signalers, the extremities of the signal workstations. And what we've done is we've published new signal workload and line blockage planning dashboards. And those are a precursor to, um, or those were a precursor, we're now on the next task, which is the dashboards. We've used them to create line blockage registers right across the country. And the line blockage registers aim to give transparency to enable better planning behaviours. But the line blockage registers effectively balance the requirements of the timetable, the signal workload that we've assessed, and it provides an opportunity for work deliverers to see when there is safe access available. Just one thing I'd say, though, is that we have still got a lot more to do in this space. And there is huge value 
in having ongoing dialogue between our operations colleagues and work deliverers. So I still see plans for loan blockages, which are far too complicated, that are issued far too late. And it's so important that we stabilise our loan block plan, that we protect it and that we get the buy-in from our operations colleagues to make sure that the plans that we're looking to deliver are indeed sustainable and safe. So, yeah, more to do, quite a lot done so far, though. Thank you, Nick. Obviously, collaboration is going to be a very important part of getting this all to work successfully. So, ultimately, moving more, if not all, workings into T3 possessions is going to mean more possessions than there are now, which is going to have to mean more people working at night. At RSSB, one of our areas of expertise is fatigue, and we know that putting people on night shifts can impact not just fatigue levels, but overall health as well. Can you tell me what you're doing to reduce the risk to health? This is an obvious concern, and we share the concern. So we are mindful of the long-term health impacts to night workers, also the risk of fatigue. And at present, As I've said before, we've reduced open line working by somewhere between 80 and 90 percent at the time of this recording. And what we've seen over the last 18 months in that change is only a four percent shift across the country to night work. And we have a number of routes now that have all but eliminated open line working. In fact, one Western route has eliminated open line working. On that route, we've seen a 10 percent shift tonight. And on that route also, the split between days and nights still remains that 60% of our worked hours are on days. And we know also on on that Western route plan that we've got more interventions throughout this year and into next year that further stabilise the plan and strike a better balance with fatigue and day work and night work. And you may wonder, how have we made such a change in open line working with such a small shift to night work? So, and it's a good question, but what we are effectively doing is we are batching work much more effectively. So those that are already on night work, we're clustering tasks so that they're more productive. But what it also does, it reduces the pressure on day workers. And that pressure is felt in, in a number of ways. So it could be pressure to grab the flags or it could be pressure on you know, overdue work orders or, or compliant assets. But we are reviewing our 28 million task work bank and we are more effectively planning and batching tasks. We're also taking advantage of afternoons. So afternoons are a, a key opportunity. We've got extensive line blockage data now and we know that there are numerous opportunities on many of the signal workstations to safely take line blockages in the afternoon. So we're able to subtly adjust rosters on day work to take advantage of afternoons. So that is what we are doing to minimise the impact of changes to nights. But we have much more to do in the area of night worker health risk. And along with our Chief Health and Safety Officer, Rupert, we have committed to working with the industry to ensure that we not only measure this risk more effectively, but also that we go over and above to show that we care for our people. But like I said, we know we've got more to do. We've got our chief medical officer involved. We've got the RSSB involved. We're taking references from Transport for London, from the Civil Aviation Authority and others to make sure that we update our practices, our risk assessments, our interventions, our actions to make sure that we manage the risk to night workers as best as we possibly can. I guess the final thing I would say, though, there's a collective responsibility here. 
And not only does, you know, do we as network rail have a, a part to play, and we definitely do, but it's also true that every individual has a part to play here to make, make sure that they look after their health. Um, we will certainly work with colleagues to, to provide good advice and good training on that. Things, you know, areas such as diet and sleep. And there are obviously many, many more aspects to this, but we've got more to do, but we are committed to doing that. Thank you, Nick. Thank you for taking the time to enlighten me and our audience about what you're doing to reduce the risk of working on track. Although you've already achieved a lot, you are still on the journey. So to end, could I ask you to describe what you see the future to be for improved track worker safety and getting everybody home safe every day? In the near future, and I mean near future, I mean this this calendar year when I say that, we will end planning work with human forms of lookout on open railways. So we won't work on open railways with just a, a human eyeball, a stick and a flag or a horn and whistle to keep track workers safe. So we are well on that journey, you know, well on the way to, to realising that aim and, and well down the journey of that now. So no more working on open railways. That's, that, that's a, a definite outcome. We're also improving our planning capability as well to ensure that we that we are easily able to strike the correct balance between the timetable, the work schedule and rostering. That means that we can plan our work with separation between track workers and trains. So we're rolling out uh, role-based capability and upskilling programme for planning colleagues. We are trialling a system called RailHub, which is an improved planning system. And we will continue to integrate the timetable planning, possession planning, line blockage planning, signal workload and ultimately where we want to get to is a signal controlled protection and a signal controlled warning system that seamlessly integrates all of what i've just said there we also seek innovation that reduces the risk to our uh, you know to frontline colleagues we still do see risk from moving trains we still see collisions with heavy plant we still have issues with working at height and we still have issues with high voltage electricity. So we will continue to seek innovation that manages that risk more effectively. And we're also committed to investing in more non-technical skills and human factors so that we support our frontline colleagues much more effectively so that they can plan and deliver their work at the front line in a much safer way. Thank you, Nick. And thank you for taking the time to talk to me today about your very important work for the railway and the safety of our colleagues who go out to maintain it. To our listeners, I would say this has been a high-level overview of the work that's being done to protect workers on track. If you'd like to hear more about any aspects of what's being done to improve workforce safety, please email me at podcasts at rssb.co.uk. Thank you all for listening, and until the next time, stay safe. Thank you.